This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with L. Grover Fricks to study sages and wise women of the text. That's right. So last week, we talked more about the typical daily activities of women in the early Levant. And maybe we heard some things that might have surprised us. Uh, but we also set our alerts on for detecting primitivism and presentism that we might be bringing with us into this story. Um, and then right when we left off, we were discussing how both the communal nature of women's tasks and the fact that women came from outside the community into a new one prepped them to be skillful negotiators in public disputes and ongoings. So we're going to start off looking at some of those examples in the text today. So we're starting with 2 Samuel. We are. We're starting in 2 Samuel 13, um, which you're going to read sonorously, I'm sure, um, for us. (laughs) But a little prep before... You read that. So in this story, uh, King David's son, Avshalom, is avenging the crimes committed against his sister um, by their brother Amnon. Uh, and that's where the where the story takes off. So here we are. And I am reading in the new revised standard version updated edition. That's right. <laughs> at L's request. Um, and I will probably say most of these names wrong. So that's okay. I'll prepare just yourselves. Mock you later. Yes. No doubt. Um, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom, having fled to Geshur, stayed there three years. And the heart of the king went out, yearning for Absalom, for he was now consoled over the death of Amnon. Now Joab, son of Zeruiah, (laughs) perceived that the king's mind was on Absalom. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. He said to her, pretend to be a mourner, put on mourning garments and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him as follows. And Joab put the words into her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did Obsessions. That one's English. You don't get grace for that one. <laughs> Not an English word that I have maybe ever encountered before. Ow. Help me, L. I don't have a dictionary pulled up. Uh, it's like fealty. Okay. All right. Uh, so she did that and said, help, O king. The king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Your servant had two sons and they fought with one another in the field. There was no one to part them, and one struck the other and killed him. That sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the story goes on, um, and it's very like the more famous story of Natan, the prophet, comes to David and tells him this parable, basically, so that David will say, what? That's terrible. Somebody should do something about that. And then Natan goes, it's you. You're the one who did it. So this is a very similar story, except for um, that Yoav has found a wise woman and asked her to play the part that Natan does um, with some, you know, some craftiness to get the king to see what's going on in the larger situation. Uh, Okay, and then we're going to read one other before we 
pull out some observations and analysis. Um, so the other passage going to read for us is 2 Samuel 20, 14 through 22. And the context for this one is this guy named Sheva is leading a rebel coalition against the reign of David. Uh, and he's running away from Yoav and his army who's pursuing him. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Avel of Bet Ma'akah, and all the Bikrites assembled and followed him inside. Job's forces came and besieged him in Avel of Bet Ma'akah. They threw up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood against the rampart. Job's forces were battering the wall to break it down. Then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, I want to speak to you. He came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said, Listen to the words of your servant. He answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in the old days, Let them inquire at Avel. And so they would settle a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, His head shall be thrown over the wall to you. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise plan, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, and all went to their homes, while Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Great story. <laughs> really great. I have questions about both of these stories, but this one I think may be even more questions. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Uh, they have a siege ramp. It's very cinematic. Um, she pulls out some theology about why he shouldn't be destroying a city after popping up on the rampart and being like, hey. Send you up to me. Uh, they have a talk and she says, no problem. I'll behead him for you. Um, her people do so. They lob it down over the wall and everybody goes home happy. Uh, okay. So what do you notice about these stories, Brent? Uh, well, so on this story, he doesn't ask for the guy's head. Right. He, he asks for the entirety of him, presumably, to be turned over. And she's like, I'll just give you the head. That should be good enough. What, like, it just seems very impractical, maybe a little too dramatic. Like, what are they going to do with the rest of the body? I what? see a specific problem with the beheading. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, mean, it's the best way to make sure that someone's really dead, right? I mean, that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely effective in that sense, but... It's easier to lug a head home than it is to lug a body home. <laughs> that's true. It's just practical, Brent. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder... Like he says, he says, give him up. So it's like, did, did he actually intend to take him back as a prisoner and like question him or whatever? Like it just, it just seems like maybe she made some assumptions like, oh, like he doesn't like this guy. And so we, we need to kill him. Well, very clearly if he like is mounting a siege on the city and it's worth killing the people of this village for then it's worth you know when one guy and he d he has a chance to say no 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 no, that's fine <laughs> take him alive just you know lob him over 
in one piece and he doesn't. That is true. She says what she's going to do and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't object. So yeah. yeah, Okay. Fair enough. She goes to her people and communicates. It says very clearly her wise plan. So if you think this is unwise, Brent, you're Mm -hmm. contradicting the word of the Lord. I know that's, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, (laughs) okay. What do you notice specifically about the wise women in each of these stories? Well, okay. So in the first story, um, it says, you know, do all these things. Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Okay. So he says, you know, here's what I want you to do. And then it says, Joab put the words into her mouth. Right. So if he's like giving her all of the instructions. Right. And giving her the words to say and everything, why does it need to be a wise woman? Why couldn't it just be any old woman? That's a good question. We'll talk about it. But apparently he knows that there is a wise woman specifically who lives in Tekoa, right? Otherwise, sure. it would say he cast about for someone who looked like she could be a good actress. But apparently he either knows of a specific woman or a role that is held by a woman in Tekoa and he knows exactly where she is and he goes and gets specifically her. Um, that put the words in her mouth thing is uh, a motif that we see around angels and messengers of like, this is what I would have you do as my deputy. I would say from a modern perspective that like, even if you're giving someone specific instructions to what you want to do, like having someone who is wise skillful whatever is going to come in handy because something is going to happen and if they can't play it cool in the moment then it's going to ruin the whole plan right which definitely happens later on in this uh story the king uh responds just the way that they hope he will but then he says do not withhold from me anything i ask of you and she says let my lord the king speak in verse 19 he says is the hand of yoav with you in all of this <laughs> and she says yes as surely as you live my lord the king one cannot turn right or left from anything that the lord the king has said um it was yoav who commanded me um so you know she has to decide whether she's going to lie or continue on and so she uses mm-hmm. her um significant political acumen to decide what's the best move here um Okay. And then in the other story, what do you notice about the wise woman in um, chapter 20? Well, in this case, she is coming out like the the siege is happening and apparently nobody else is doing anything. And then she's like, I got to say something. So she calls out from the city. Right. I would... I imagine it says Joab's forces were battering the wall to break it down. So that means there's been some conversation. You don't just like bring your siege engines and start going to town. First, you go to the gate and you say, hey, let us in. We're trying to get this guy. And apparently the gate people said, no, fam, it's not going to happen today. And then (laughs) you're going to bring the siege engines, right? That would be a vast misuse of energy otherwise to like start hammering on the wall if the door is open. So there has been some kind of strategizing going on um, and something has happened that makes her pop up Monty Python style on the top of the wall. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But she's described also as a wise woman, Um, as I'm sure you also know, as someone who's been to Israel multiple times, um, this both describes a northern city in one story and a southern city in another story. Um, and if you were to read it carefully, you'll see in both 1414 and in 20 verse 18, um, they both quote, uh, 
Proverbs, not like the book of Proverbs, but they both utilize Proverbs in order to explain their case in some way. So in chapter 20, she says, um, they used to say in the old days, let them inquire at Havel and they would settle a matter. So she's, it's in quotes. If you look at it in your text, she's quoting something. Um, so apparently they have extensive seemingly extensive knowledge of wisdom literature that they're drawing into their um, their strategies here to accomplish their goals. So N.K. Gottwald is a sociologist of the Tanakh, um, and he said that biblical young women were the bonding elements between families and often between villages, just like we said last week. Um, they're intimate with at least two family groups and were trained trained to function as interfamiliar diplomats. Um, these factors would have expanded the scope of wise women's potential authority. So we certainly see that in this text, right? They're not, um, they're not just standing in the background or in a back room um, on the board of the city being like, has anybody told Joab that we'll just give him his head, right? She's, she demands to speak to the commander. People listen to her. It is apparently a position of some authority that people she, her orders are followed. Um, she presents the plan to the city and the city says, yes, let's do that. So she's a good leader who brings um, her people along with her. But certainly she's not a, a background character who figures out in some kind of subversive underdog way to get the head of Sheva to Yoav. She, um, she orchestrates the whole thing, right? And apparently Yoav knows about these kinds of women because there's more than one and they're called A, not the. If it was the wise woman, that would imply that there's just kind of one out there, kind of like a Deborah situation. But he knows that they have these skills. And so he utilizes those skills to talk to something, um, talk about something to David that he doesn't feel equipped to talk to David about. So the in the case of Tekoa, mm-hmm. it, it does say sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Right. So it's like, is Tekoa this community known for their wise women? And it's just like, oh, it doesn't matter who, just get one from Tekoa and it'll be good. Or, yeah, because it seems like there would be maybe not necessarily, maybe one, at least one in every town, I would think. I would love a midrash about a whole bunch of wise women who live in Tekoa and it's just like the wise woman town. But we see it come up in other passages um, in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, specifically in Jeremiah. Um, Amos is from Tekoa. And so it doesn't seem like it's kind of like a priestly town. Sometimes we have where everybody there is a priest. It seems like mm-hmm. it's a role that's being filled in Tekoa that um, Joab happens to know about. Yeah, there was one other thing uh, I was looking at. The NET footnotes clued me into this, but when she first comes and talks to the king, she says, your servant had two sons and they fought with one another. And the word for servant is like a like a very lowly servant. Mm. But then um, later, beyond where we read um, today, it, it, she uses a different word for servant. Um, I think it's in verse 15. So she mixes it up and like, she's still labeling herself as a servant, but she's elevating her position. And the footnote says that that is potentially the, the higher level servant is potentially one who 
would hold some obligation from the king versus the lowlier servant who would have um, would have nothing that they could demand, basically. Uh, what was the second servant usage there? Verse 12, did he say? Verse 15. Verse 15. Oh, I see it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, I think that could just speak to her wisdom. Like when she initially approaches the king, she's she's putting herself in the lowest position, making right. herself, you know, most most likely to succeed. And like lots of like she's she's approaching him, and and she needs to get into a conversation. And if he just dismisses her out of hand because she comes in, you know, presumptuous about her position. So she gets into the conversation and then as the conversation progresses, she elevates her position and then turns that into something that she can get the king to, to do. So listen to, yeah, excellent. And she doesn't make him annoyed enough to want to murder her because you know, she's the hand of Yoav here. Mm -hmm. Like tell that guy to get in here right now. (laughs) Could have gone that way. Okay. But so we have these two examples of a wise woman, woman. Um, But if we think of the wise woman who the wise woman of the whole wisdom literature, the one who immediately pops to mind to me is the archetypal wise woman in Proverbs, right? We have the first whole nine chapters of Proverbs um, is a about a woman who's described uh, in various ways, contrasted with folly, who is described um, as a sex worker, right? So I am used to, in the Sunday school I grew up in, they had the teenagers read the book of Proverbs out loud, which, you know, of all the moves to make, like teenagers need wisdom. So it's a solid move. Sure. Uh, But the, the, vibe that I got at that time was that wisdom was annoyed and she's crying out all the time. So I imagined her kind of sobbing and swooning all over the place, like a Victorian lady fainting on handy chaises, you know, just being like, Oh, if only people would listen to me, this is so sad. Um, and sometimes our translations are what is messing with us. Um, so can you read again, NRSV Proverbs one verses 20 and 21, which which is her opening section. And again, there's nine chapters that you can do analysis of here, but we're only going to look at these two verses. Wisdom cries out in the street. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. Right. So hopefully a few things stand out to us there um, that we'll talk about in a second. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say crying out at all, um, much less twice. It, these are the verbs. First one is raising a war cry, like before the military goes into war, they run in. And it says that that's what she's doing. The second time, it says she gives her voice like you give a gift. The third time, it says that she's calling out, which um, is the word for also when you're reading publicly. And so crying out again, that would be a little bit dramatic if you're like reading and crying. Um, And then finally, uh, speaking, 
which again, to me, feels very different in tone than crying out like a damsel in distress, right? Um, And then if we also notice the places where she's doing that, applying some of our knowledge that we've gained from listening, I'm sure, to all six sessions of the Bema podcast in order, um, we, it might pop out immediately. She's in the city gates, the entrance of the city gates. What's, what's the significance of city gates, Brent? That's everything in the town. That's where they handle every aspect of life, basically. Politics, business. Um, that's where the judges hang out often, unless you're Deborah. Um, that's where justice is handled. And so she's in a public political spot there, um, the center of everything. Again, not a little back room. Um, the other places she lists, she's listed outside in the public square, similar um, type of thing. One interesting the third one there it says the head of the place where everyone discusses in the Hebrew. It's um it's from this onomatopoeia for a hubbub. So a place wherever there's hubbub, she's in the head of it. So some people translate that chief concourse, which is funny to me, just makes me think about airports. Um, <laughs> it's probably more like the Agora. But if you're on the head of the place where everybody congregates, right, it's where the leader stands and then it moves her into the city gates. So she's more... Um, a less sad Victorian woman, and more authoritative speaker, right? Raising a war cry about wisdom is a very different, different image. Um, and if we think about our typical reading of Proverbs, right, we know Folly is depicted as this prostitute. And we always know that that job is real and tangible, even if it's also an archetypal image in the story. But for some reason, we tend to imagine that in contrast to this real woman figure that we know would have been hanging around the town, we imagine that wisdom, a wise woman, is only archetypal um, and only abstract and not actually based on also a real figure and a real role that would have been familiar to the original listener. I mean, wh- why would why would Proverbs have all of these like vivid pictures of what this woman is doing if people couldn't look to that as an actual, I mean, maybe, maybe it's not quite the same, um, in Tanakh. Cause maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading, you know, the age of the rabbis mm-hmm. into this and thinking like, Oh, they've always got to be able to point at something, but that's just what I'm imagining is like, why mm-hmm. is Proverbs filled with this? I mean, you said nine chapters. Yes. Of, of this image of this wise woman um, in these prominent places. And it seems like they would be using that as an example because that is what people see. Right. You know, Hebrew is still very image-based and tends away from the abstract. There's always some kind of underlying contextual picture, whether it's eternity or anything else, right? So uh, I think even if that is a little bit of a rabbinical specific tool, that that's still a um, legitimate point. Uh, We also know that um, there are wise women outside of just these two stories in 2 Samuel. Um, We know in the north, both from the Sumerian era all the way through the Babylonian era, there are women called Naditu, N-I-D-I-T-U, if you're going to Wikipedia or Google it. Um, And they were wise women, scribes and bureaucrats all wrapped into one Naditu women. Um, and they are probably from 
the higher up class, but they're pretty cool if you read about them. They live in a kind of monastery-like situation. Um, so that's always fun. Don't type Naditu by itself into a search engine. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm curious, but I won't ask. It, it autocorrects to nudity. Oh, no. <laughs> or your computer autocorrected. <clears throat> no, the no. search engine does. It's like, did you mean this or did you actually mean Naditu? Oh, my. Well, we do mean Naditu. Okay. Um, so from these stories, archaeological evidence, the testimony of Proverbs, it seems like wise woman is a role filled by someone in your community. She's highly involved in civil life. She leads the town through various political and military affairs. She's a known public figure and not just advising in back room. And she speaks authoritatively on behalf of her people. Okay. Naditu. I miss her. I think I misheard you. N-A-D-I-T-U. N-A. Either way, I this could have link, said it wrong. Who this knows? link will be in the show notes. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to turn our eyes to the wisdom literature, Brent. You ready? That was our wise women section. Now we're going to talk about sages. Mm. Mm. Find out where is Gandalf in the story. (laughs) It's always my priority. Uh, Is that what all the wise women look like or yeah. not the, or the the yeah the female sages they got a big hat they got a staff <laughs> they're enigmatic disappear at annoying times and they hate wolves okay so i'm gonna unspool this half of things in more of a hebrew teaching style so you've gotta hold on hold on to your seats with me here okay we're gonna present some things and then we're gonna back off and then bring it bring it back in All right. So specifically in the wisdom literature, we're going to talk about Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. Um, So one way of thinking about these books is that they're twins paired together. So Song of Songs is all about life being beautiful and good and full of adventure, right? Come let us go to the hills, the lights of all sorts of kinds. Um, And interspersed with advice that we typically would categorize as wisdom, like do not awaken love before it's time. Um, some unusual things about the Song of Songs other than the subject matter. What pops to mind about the way the structure of the book goes? Well, Song of Songs is like a dialogue. Right. With a few like extra characters who yeah. jump in now and then, but but mostly a dialogue. What, who are the folks in that dialogue? The, what is it? The, the lover and the beloved. That's one like that. one way of splitting it up, and then the third character that pops in. That's and says one wrong stuff. way of splitting it up. You I think didn't it? say that. I didn't say that. Uh, and then who's the third group? Uh, friends, I think. It's the daughters of oh, Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem. Okay. So we've got a group of women a woman and then a guy and the guy um, really only has two sections where he's the primary speaker. There's a couple chapters where they're going back and forth, but when he has a long monologue, it only happens twice. So two thirds of this book are uh, narrated by a woman. Um, and that's not necessarily something that was critical for the story, right? You can have a love song all from the man's perspective. You don't need to incorporate women for some reason, Um, but it does. So we can immediately start thinking about why is that who would have thought 
that it's okay to write from a woman's perspective when they're not a woman or who would have, you know, wanted to take on that role. Um, And the immediate thing that we'll think of if we are familiar with the verse is that or the verse, the, the book is that traditionally who wrote this? Solomon. Solomon, right? Many of our Bibles say Song of Solomon instead of Song of Songs or Canticles or Shir Your NRSV UE says Song of Songs and my NIV says Song of Songs, but also my NET says Song of Solomon. Yes, there's a, there's a spread of, of options. Also, but- NRSV says Friends in the subtitles, so... Interesting. Okay. Well, the the verse that we get that from is verse one. Um, and it says, Ashir Hashirim, which is song of the songs or the song of the songs. Um, and then it says, La, which is a preposition, which is always two or four. Um, and then Shlomo's name. So it's two or four Shlomo. We have a grammatical form called smichut that we use all the time to designate of. Um, and in fact, we have it in the, those first two words, song of songs, right? And it doesn't say that. It doesn't say song of songs of Solomon. It says to Solomon or for Solomon. So that opens up um, the possibility that it could have been written by a whole host of folks, right? Um, in order to be performed in Solomon's court, perhaps, or um, on his behalf, or as a drama or a play for entertainment, right? Um, but it's certainly not by Solomon, unless you're writing it to yourself. I don't know. I haven't started that many works that says to L. I'm just reading the NET footnote and seeing how much it uh, how much it will agree with you. It's it's a very long footnote, but it does seem to say like, oh, traditionally it's been taken as written by Solomon, but perhaps it is better translated, dedicated for Solomon. There you go. Fact and checked by the NET. Well, found I wouldn't to be necessarily blameless. fact check the NET. Blameless. But sometimes it can point you to some good ideas. I'm in the clear. Um, it's been rendered correct I was, by the word of the NET. I was not looking to clear you. I was looking to clear the NET. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I is I feel like half the time tight. it's like, oh, here's this understanding we have. And the NET is like, nope, traditional. And here's a thousand words on why. It's like, ugh. <laughs> and you know, I'm all for a thousand word footnotes. But uh, so, okay. So we're going to table that for a second because the idea that maybe a woman could have written a book of the Bible first off might be inflammatory for all sorts of reasons, but also... Yeah, we already crossed that bridge back in Hebrews. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to remind listeners, maybe they skipped that one. Uh, But okay, so we're going to circle back to that. Tabling it for a second. Uh, Women in this era, writing isn't even something that we think about happening. So the idea that a woman would have written something on behalf of the king uh, is more odd, probably. Um, but turning our eyes over to Ecclesiastes before we circle back, um, and the other half of this twin set of philosophies, um, we have the more dour one, right? It's pretty nihilistic. Everything is vanity or vapor or temporary. And there's lots of ways to read or interpret the book, 
the book. Um, some read it as earnest and straight and everything it says just means literally. And some people take it to be satirical and indictment of the elites and their wealth and their perspective. Um, but it opens less vaguely than Song of Songs um, because it literally says the words of Kohelet, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the words of Kohelet, son of David, king in Yerushalayim. So who do we presume this one to be written by? The, well, the words of the teacher is how how they translate. I think right. I think we typically ascribe this one to Solomon as well. We do. So we're going to talk about the teacher thing in a minute. But um, we ascribe it to Solomon, even though this one doesn't even use his name um, based on his general wisdom. But justice for Absalom and Adonijah, right? And all the others. It could have been them. It doesn't say that, that it's him. Um, but so let's talk about dating. Um, we're going to kiss it goodbye. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about archaeological dating or dating of the text. Um, so lots of times when we discuss when something was written, it's a whole spectrum. There's folks who end up in the minimalism category and some who end up in the maximalist category. And all of those generally is fine wherever you want to land. You can do so in good conscience across a certain spread of dates, right? But sometimes we have a hard line of, uh-oh, uh, of um, bringing in the possible spectrum of when something can be written that's really hard to get around. So the problem with the dating here uh, is that this book, this scroll, is littered with Persian, Persian words. Mm. Problem is, we have three eras of Persian, and the oldest era of Persian that we have, which is called Old Persian, very creatively named, um, uh, the oldest inscription that we have, the oldest evidence is from um, Iran, and it's from the 400s BC. Mm. Um, King Shlomo is from the 10th century BC. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's not really happening for, for us if we want to say that it is. Um, Shlomo's writing. However, so should I throw my whole book of the Bible in the toilet because clearly it's all full of lies and trying to lead me astray? No. Um, Will always be my answer. Um, So if I were to say, start a speech by saying four score and seven years ago, I'm clearly evoking Lincoln, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I want you to know some things about the stuff that I'm going to say by evoking him, right? I'm telling you about my values that maybe are going to come out in the speech. I'm telling you about the genre of the speech. Um, But it's clear that I'm not pretending to be Lincoln. I'm not lying. I know that you know I'm not Lincoln. And if I was trying to deceive people into thinking I was Lincoln, I would not throw in a bunch of words in Mandarin, right? (laughs) That would kind of be a a (laughs) tip-off. So again... It's not about deceit and the Bible trying to get away with something. Um, It's about the author is evoking the legendary wisdom of Solomon and telling us that this is part of the wisdom literature and telling us something about the genre and the values um, in the scroll, whether or not you read it as satire or as straight, you know, gloomy Eeyore energy. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think we talked about this uh, with the book of Job because mm. people like to talk about how Job is the oldest book of the Bible or whatever. And it's right. like, well, they found it next to in the hands of a brontosaurus, actually. Yeah. 
yeah. when they unearthed it. That's where it was. <laughs> we didn't we didn't mention that on the original episode. Weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, my bad. Um, but yeah, like the the story, like in this case, the words of these teacher may be old, but by the time they're actually written down and recorded, it is much later, and and that story has been. Mm added to or you know modified for the current culture whatever like how many how many movies do we have today of romeo and juliet and it's like well it's not really the original version of shakespeare's play but baz Luhrmann did it perfectly leonardo dicaprio nailed it don't uh, say anything otherwise i i can't i can't say anything (laughs) uh, yeah no um so i it seems like that's pretty reasonable thing like you know, he had a set of teachings that he passed on and they continued to be passed on. And by the time it got to the point where we actually wrote it down, it had been much, much later. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be evoking Shlomo again. I think I think that's probable, but still pointing out, relieving out a whole bunch of other sons of David never actually says Solomon. But I hear you for sure. It could be um, people taking the words of Solomon for 600 years and then deciding at that point, you know what, we should put this down. But um, that still perhaps brings up a question of authorship. So that brings us back to this word Kohelet. So if you're reading like the JPS, it just says Kohelet. Um, So can you look at that Bible Hub um, link of all the different translations and tell me how people usually translate Kohelet? Uh, well, the NET footnote does start off. The meaning of Kohelet is somewhat puzzling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what have our translators gone with? Okay, so teacher is the word in the NIV, the NLT. ESV uses preacher. Uh, King James uses preacher, New King James sticks with preacher, NASB is preacher, lots of preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are the big two. I think there's only one other that just sticks with Kohelet, which, hey, if you don't know what to do with the with the word, I respect leaving it as is. The contemporary English version says, when the son of David was king in Jerusalem, he was known to be very wise. And he said... Oh, wow. Just totally... You know, just... Just being creative, just writing what's what's on your heart. Um, the Dewey Rahim says the words of Ecclesiastes, the son of David. Okay. Um, we'll talk about why in a second. Uh, God's word translation says the words of the spokesman, the, the son of David. Spokesman. Wow. Uh, good news translation goes with philosopher. Fascinating. Okay. So the word uh, central in the word Kohelet, the root there is Kohel in the Hebrew. Um, Kohel means to assemble or to gather. So this is used um, pretty frequently. It's used uh, a lot when Moshe is gathering his when Moshe is gathering his people together to yell at them for something or celebrate. You never know, but it's usually yelling. Um, he'll say Kohel assemble. Um, there's an Avengers joke somewhere in there that I'm not going to spend time on. Uh, and so it can also be made to be a noun, assembly. So Ecclesiastes is the name of the book in English because in Greek, um, in the Septuagint, we replaced 
ecclesia for Kohel, um, which is where we get our word church from, because our gathered assembly today is a church. Um, so when we get this root in our first verse, um, people are doing their best of like, okay, an assembler or someone who's speaking before the assembly. And so we put teacher in there, even though there's a Hebrew word for teacher, we put a uh, preacher in there because we live in our context and we have preachers. And so, you know, whatever, spokesmen, philosophers, sure, those people also speak before an assembly, right? Um, there's also a way that you can work with the word. It's a lot of the scholarship is landing on at the moment um, where you th they think that it's not necessarily someone speaking before the assembly, but rather someone who is doing assembly. They're actually assembling things. Specifically, they're assembling or gather gathering together wisdom texts, wisdom proverbs, wisdom literature. So more of the role of a sage, um, the role of someone whose job it is to know wisdom literature and pack it together and be a resource dispensing it out to people. Um, either is fine with me. Um, you know, it's one of the things where if I die tomorrow, show up in heaven, and they're like, no, it was actually a, an assembler. I'll be like, okay, that's great. Awesome. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, maybe it's it somebody... have to be tomorrow, though. I don't know. We got a few more podcasts to record at least. We've got a few. If you few. can hold off for a few We've more weeks. We've got three more episodes to go. I'd like to stick around for my, for a lot of reasons. Okay. So maybe somebody else wrote down the words of the Kohelet who's speaking before the assembly, or maybe the author is the Kohelet who has aggregated all of this wisdom um, from around the kingdom. Here's the problem that people don't like to talk about, which is funny. Kohelet isn't the root. Kohelet is the root. It has, has a suffix added to it. It's et. Um, so the very first day in biblical Hebrew, you learn about which suffixes exist to make things masculine versus feminine. And the et sound that at the end is one of the two ways you make something feminine. This is very black and white. This is like the difference between Bernard and Bernadette, like George and Georgia. Um, there, It's not fuzzy about like, well, sometimes things show up as feminine when no, it is a feminine ending. Um, and sometimes it's obfuscated by people being like, it's an alternative form. Yeah, it's an alternative form just as much as Bernadette is an alternative form for Bernard, right? It means the female version. Um, so I'll let everybody in their own context spiral into despair and chaos on whether it's a woman preacher, female preacher, um, right? <laughs> uh, but L, I told L, don't get me started on using woman as an adjective no. and female as a noun because I've got a whole soapbox on that. I, so we're just going to set that aside. I, I tried to bait you for a little deflection from the <laughs> drama, but alas, it didn't work. Okay. Um, so we can wrestle with that on our own time. Uh, but the possibility that she's a sage. Um, so if she's someone doing the assembly of all this wisdom text, right? We saw these wise women earlier quoting these apparently proverb-like statements. Um, how does this match up with our presumption coming from primitivism, right, that women can't even read or write? It's probably true that many people um, couldn't read or write, right? <laughs> like men also couldn't read and write most of the time until we get to the rabbinic era, right, for different reasons. Um, but if you are out there living your agrarian dreams, 
making that good, good kosher wine, you're not going to necessarily um, be reading Plato on the on the uh, in your afternoons. Well, and I think that goes back to our last episode where it's like a substantial portion of time was taken up doing the stuff that seems like basic tasks to us right. today. There's, there just wasn't time right. to deal with reading. You got to grind all your own flour. You're not going to be penning lengthy things. So it is probably um, the occupation of the elites when it exists. Um, but again, we talked about the Naditu women in the North. So they certainly um, are reading and writing. We know that female authorship is a known phenomenon. And Hedwana was a member of the royal family, a poet, William Holocaust, her a systematic theologian. Um, M.V. Fox says it's quite likely that women composed songs and there's no reason to assume that this kind of composition was the province of men exclusively in the ancient Near East. And um, we also have women's tombs in the region um, who are found buried with writing implements, which... Um, when you know the context of burial and it's kind of a setup of your home as it was in this world um, for them to have in the world to come, you would only give them their stuff, right? So if they have a writing implement, it suggests that they could indeed write. You know, at this point, 400s or a thousand or whatever, like, like we came out of Egypt uh, with women in these leadership roles. Right making songs. So I, right. hopefully this wouldn't be too surprising. That And we've got prophets also who um, are speaking authoritatively and perhaps writing down what they're being told. So anyway, um, so we've got these women potentially operating as sages, potentially operating as preachers, potentially writing more than just the book of Hebrews, um, potentially uh, or definitely operating in these political, um, civil life, military um, roles. Uh Breaking breaking out of the conventions that we might be tempted to assign to women um, because we assume, well, you know, things were kind of worse in general back then with our um, primitivism mindset on. And so they must have been much worse for women sometimes, sometimes, but especially not if you're wealthy. Um, there are still women breaking through the cracks, um, coming through in perhaps subversive ways, but also possibly part of the fabric of the infrastructure of their society and their role as wise women, certainly. Um, so in the coming weeks, we're going to continue to look at specific cases of extraordinary forgotten women in our Bibles. Sounds wonderful. I agree. So is your official stance on Hebrews is that it is written by a woman? My official stance? Yeah. Uh, press release, yes. Press release, yes. <laughs> I mean, life. Marty and I didn't necessarily land on that, but it seems like as much a possibility as anything else. So it's just, you know, yeah. since it is possible, it's like, well, why not then? Yes. If somebody de specifically doesn't say who they are in an era in which you did say who you were, mm -hmm. who's motivated to do that? And then you only use one pronoun the whole time. And yes, it's masculine, but uh, a woman in the Greco-Roman society would be highly motivated to cover over her gender. So Sure. You yeah, know. exactly. Anyway, extra tidbits of scandal brought to you by the provoking of Brent Billings. Well, it's all it's all past scandal. We've, uh, we've been through all that. People, people in this episode... Have have walked through that uh, the those thoughts and yeah the tohu vavohu. 
We don't know, but it certainly seems like a good possibility. So I like it. Wonderful. All right. We will be back uh, next week with more, many more women. They're, mm. they're more than you might realize. That's the whole idea of this. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> all right. Well, in the meantime, uh, go to BaymouthCybership.com. We'll have all of those links in the show notes for the things we talked about today. You can find me at elgriverfricks at gmail.com with all your questions. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, you guys know where to find me. <laughs> so thanks for joining us on the Baymouth Podcast. We will talk to you again soon. <laughs>